Well, hello there, and welcome to episode three of This is Technology Ethics. In this episode, myself and Sven are going to be talking about value alignment and control. I won't say too much more about either of those concepts since we discussed them at length in the conversation itself. All I will say at the outset is that if you like this podcast, uh, please consider subscribing to it on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, whichever your favorite podcasting platform happens to be. And also maybe spread the word on social media or amongst your colleagues. Anything you can do to help grow the audience for this show uh, would be most appreciated. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the recording of the conversation between myself and Sven. Okay, right, we're back for another episode. This is episode three, and we're going to be talking today about the contents of uh, kind of chapter four of your book, or that's the inspiration and we are a rough basis for this conversation, which is about the topic of value alignment and control. And these are concepts or ideas that are often brought up in relation to the debate about AI, but I guess you have a slightly kind of broader conceptual framework to offer for thinking about, about these issues. So we'll we'll get into that. that. However, uh, you start your chapter with, uh, I think, a classic kind of case study in the history of technology and technological risk, which is the story of Stanislav Petrov. So I thought it might be worth just briefly recapping some of the details of that story for people who may not be familiar with it and to get an understanding of why it's such a, I don't know, like cherished parable or case study in technological risk. So maybe you could uh, lead us off in discussing that example. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there's a documentary about uh, Stanislav Petro that's called The Man Who Saved the World. So that uh, should already uh, give us an indication about the, uh, I don't know, the dimensions of the issue. And so uh, basically back in 1983, uh, there was a worry that there would be a nuclear war between uh, the, the Soviet Union and the United States. And so uh, Stanislav Petro was a, well, he was working on the side of the Soviets and uh, his job was to kind of sit and look at uh, some uh, uh, equipment that would detect whether the U.S. would launch uh, sort of the nuclear uh, missile attack on the Soviet Union. Uh, and his orders was that if this this computer from back then uh, sort of indicated that uh, an attack had been launched, then he should uh, sort of pass that information on to his superiors and then they would launch a uh, attack back on the U.S. Uh, so that uh, yeah, so that they they could really go to war and, and be uh, you know not wait until the uh, too late, so to speak, from their point of view. But uh, anyway, so on one occasion in 1983, the system did indicate indicate indeed that uh, the U.S. had launched first one uh, sort of nuclear uh, bomb missile towards the Soviet Union's, and that five more were on their way. And again, his uh, orders, Stanislav Petra's orders, was to then to take this information and, and pass it on, so that the the higher ups could start plan a counterattack and a nuclear war could start. Luckily for the world, uh, and this is why they call him the man who saved the world. Uh, uh, luckily, he thought this must be a false alarm, so I'm, I'm not going to pass on the information, and because uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to risk starting a nuclear war unnecessarily, and. Uh, also, luckily, again, 
he was he was right. It it was you know false information. It was uh, there was no nuclear attack, and indeed uh, there was as a result because he didn't pass on information. No no nuclear war started, and so you know he well saved the world according to this documentary. And and so this I mean I start with this example in this chapter because the chapter is about as you said trying to aligning uh, try, trying to align uh, technologies with our values and trying to make them do good things for us and trying to have, avoid having technologies cause problems. I mean, this was a case where technology almost caused a huge problem, namely a nuclear war. And on this occasion, a human being stepped in and, and said, okay, this is a false alarm. We're not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to trust the technology. So I guess that's another issue that's relevant here. To what extent should we rely on or trust? I mean, some people say that we can't actually trust technologies because we can only trust humans or uh, moral agents and technologies are not moral agents. This is some, a topic that we're going to talk about in a later uh, episode. Um, actually, probably possibly also a little bit later today. Anyway, so that's that's why I start with that example. And that's a striking example. I mean, maybe one more comment about uh, Petrov. I mean, so he didn't follow his orders. And so in a certain sense, the, the higher-ups were unhappy with him for that reason. But on the other hand, of course, they also recognized that uh, he had sort of prevented a nuclear war and so uh, they didn't punish him but they also didn't uh, giving him any kind of awards or anything like that because he was not following orders and so he sort of quietly lived out the rest of his life and was a little bit depressed about this and then died just a few years ago I think maybe 10 years ago and then a lot of this information came to light and then uh, for example that documentary was made about him and so on but so he was sort of a silent hero of the, of the 80s and and there are, I think, also some other examples like that, but this was one that I thought was particularly striking. I think a good way of uh, starting a discussion about, uh, you know, to what extent can technologies do good things for us, and to what extent can they cause problems, and to what extent should we trust them, and how can we align them with our values? Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think there are a couple of other examples. I think there's some like famous nuclear sub example as well, but I can't actually remember the names of the parties involved. But again, on the Soviet side. But the Petrov case is the one that's sort of very widely discussed, at least in a certain literature on technological risks. I mean, if I recall correctly, what had actually happened was that the alarm system was triggered by, was it like sunlight or something reflecting off clouds, something like really weird or seemingly trivial like that. So it was, uh, it gave this false positive signal as a result of this um, yeah, sun, that- sunlight. Absolutely. And that is sort of is, is in a certain sense, the inverse of an example from uh, 2016, I think, where a Tesla car thought that a white truck was a white cloud and therefore didn't stop, but instead ran straight into the uh, into this uh, white truck. And this was the first time a human being died in a self-driving car uh, in, I think, Florida, uh, because, uh, again, there was a sort of false detection of something that the technology thought it was one thing, but it was another and a big problem. On this occasion, was caused unlike in the case where so so the the human in the self driving car also didn't do anything, and so he relied on the safety equipment in the self driving car and the Tesla car and died as a result. So it's, it's an interesting sort of parallel between this case and that case. Yeah, I mean, as for why like this case is so widely discussed or commented upon, I mean, there seems to be a few things going on, but like I, I suppose the main thing for me is that. It highlights, I guess, the fragility to some extent of certain kinds of socio-technical systems. So, you know, systems where there's a kind of deep integration of technology with human actors, 
And I, I suspect the point that a lot of people are making is that there's like one one link in the chain was responsible for preventing p- potentially catastrophic nuclear war. And it seems like so such a thin reed upon which to kind of rest the weight of human fate, like on just this one actor who happened to have the courage of his convictions on that day to say, oh, maybe the system is wrong. But we can easily imagine somebody else in the same context saying, oh, that's a genuine signal. So let's you know, trigger nuclear war. Now, I don't know exactly how the Soviet command hierarchy worked at the time, and I'm sure this information is available, but it's possible that he would have passed this up and somebody else would have had further kind of veto power over it, right? So it could have been prevented at a, at a later point in time, but it just seems looking at it that it's such a, a contingent event that we could easily be in this other reality where there had been this catastrophic nuclear war. Absolutely, and, and so those are some of the reasons why I start with that example, but I also start with it because when people talk about aligning technologies with values, they sometimes sort of look into futures and possible technologies that we don't yet have. And they imagine, uh, I mean, Nick Bostrom imagines a paper clip producing AI super intelligence technology. And he says that, well, such a technology could go out of control because it's, it could sort of, uh, you know, super intelligently, uh, super effic- efficiently uh, way sort of produce lots of paper clips at the expense of human beings that maybe you know would be t- converted into paper clips and so that's a kind of science fiction example about how technologies can cause problems that's imagining a future where this could happen but I, I I thought it would be nice to start with something that has actually happened and where there's no super intelligence involved uh, but there's still a, a potential enormous problem. I mean, the dis- destruction of the world. I mean, a nuclear war could really lead to sort of the end of civilization. So it's just an interesting case to show that it doesn't have to be a kind of science fiction scenario in order for it to be a kind of existential risk uh, involving technologies. It, it, it has already happened and it could happen again. So that, that's another reason why I started with that case. Yeah, as you say, the the discussion of value alignment in particular, and, and control, which we'll also discuss later on, these are concepts that are like you know heavily tied into the AI risk literature, and these these concerns from people like Nick Bostrom, Eliezer Yudkowsky, and now many others who worry that super intelligent AI or artificial general intelligence will or has the potential to destroy the world because it is misaligned with our values. It doesn't understand what we want or appreciate what we want in some sense. But uh, th- there are potentially more trivial or mundane examples of value misalignment, even within the world of AI. So I was recently talking to um, Atusa Kassirzadeh, who's written an interesting paper about value alignment in chatbots. And the first example she uses is the Microsoft Tay chatbot as an illustration of value misalignment. So for those who aren't aware of that example, I think it was in 2016, Microsoft released this chatbot uh, on Twitter, I think initially. I kind of, I think it was supposed to replicate roughly the idiom of like a teenage American girl or something like this. And uh, was trained on inputs that were given to it by people online. And people started feeding it lots of kind of racist and bigoted speech. And it started spitting out like racist and bigoted speech as a result. And obviously, that seems like not what Microsoft wanted to achieve with the chatbot. And they quickly pulled it offline and and, uh, discontinued it. 
but that seems to be a case where whatever underlying technological infrastructure or machine learning system they had um, was such that it became misaligned with their values and people kind of exploited it as a result of that or spotted this kind of weakness or flaw within it. So you have like problems of value misalignment even with more um, kind of mundane or uh, extant forms of AI. And also I think your point within this chapter is that actually value alignment is a problem for all technologies, not just AI technologies, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I really like that paper by Atusa and also a co-author by Yasun Gabriel. I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting case just because, I mean, uh, large language models are supposed to model human language use. But of course, there's a huge subset of our language use, which is highly problematical uh, from an ethical point of view. Uh, so, you know, if you train the large language models on, on, on content from the Internet and uh, people have been saying racist things or uh, other things that are problematic, then, of course, if if the technology is supposed to model that, then, you know, that's going to be part of what it's modeling. But then, uh, as they argue, that's probably not a good idea. So we need to align that uh, the technology with sort of a good use of language, morally good use of language, not just a sort of grammatically correct use. But yeah, I mean, I think that uh, certainly this doesn't just apply to AI. Uh, any technology can be problematic from a from an ethical point of view. I mean, a lot of people uh, in the uh, philosophy of technology, they, they discuss this example from, uh, I guess it's the 50s or 60s uh, with uh, the uh, uh, overpasses or like this uh, low bridges in, uh, in New York uh, close to the beach so that only cars could uh, pass under them uh, and so no buses. Uh, so uh, Robert Moses, the architect behind this, has been accused of being sort of a racist because uh, uh, a lot of the uh, people who used the buses there apparently were black people. And so some people have, have interpreted this as a way of sort of creating a, a technological environment, in this case, a bridge that would have a certain effects, namely only allowing rich, in this case, rich white people to kind of access the beaches. And there have been some discussion, has been some discussion about whether that case really uh, it's, a, it's a good example because apparently there were some other roads uh, to, of getting to the beach and perhaps buses running on those roads. But anyway, so that's that's just another, another example of how a technology, a bridge in this case, can fail to fit with certain values. And so I, mean, I was just talking about large language models possibly being racist. This is a case where a bridge uh, possibly was also racist in a certain sense, at least according to, according to some commentators. I mean, I have uh, some people I went to uh, graduate school with, uh, uh, Sam Liao and Bryce Hubner, they wrote a whole paper that they call oppressive things. And they talk about how human oppressive systems can sort of be uh, manifest, manifested, uh, manifested uh, in the technologies we use by our sort of uh, allowing our, uh, uh, you know, the problems we have to be, uh, yeah, to become uh, concrete in this case. I mean, literally speaking and figuratively speaking, like, you know, we're making a bridge that actually embodies certain racist attitudes. And so, yeah, it's not just about AI. However, this is a huge topic uh, within the AI discussion because uh, a lot of people think these days that we should define the, the creation of AI as the creation of agents, artificial agents. And uh, the definition of an agent is basically a system or an entity that is able to pursue goals and uh, and that is able to do so in a way that is responsive to the, to the environment that the agent is operating within. Now, and then, of course, the, the question is, well, what goals and in what way would the system be you know, pursuing those goals? 
Uh, and you know you can imagine different things. I mean, maybe the goals are problematic from an ethical point of view, or maybe the goals are perfectly perfectly fine. Let's let's say produce paper clips to use the Bostrom example again. However, the means taken uh, in order to achieve uh, the goals by that artificial agent could be highly problematic. So uh, this is just one of the reasons why people tend to really discuss the idea of value alignment when it comes to AI, namely because they think of AI as a kind of agency. Uh, and uh, I mean, this, this, I guess this applies to large language models in a certain sense. I mean, it's an interesting case because it seems to be a sort of agency-like behavior, namely producing a text in a way that seems to model human speech. Yet, you know, there's no obvious agent there. I mean, we, we will probably discuss this later. I mean, so people have different opinions about this. But uh, uh, I mean, actually, just to maybe mention another way of defining AI, uh, that's not in my book, but... Uh, that was uh, sort of introduced uh, just after the book came out by Luciano Floridi. He says that AI is really the, the, uh, a kind of agency without any intelligence. And so we call it artificial intelligence, but the way in which AI technologies act and you know the way that they function is very different than the way that humans with natural in intelligence function. So the way that we achieve our goals is gonna be quite different than the way that AI technologies achieve their goals. And while Florida himself doesn't like to talk about things such as existential risks, I mean, like the, the end of the world, et cetera, he and other people are, of course, worried that, okay, we have a new kind of agent, perhaps without any kind of human-like intelligence, then uh, there's no guarantee that it's going to be sensitive to the sort of considerations that humans with natural intelligence are going to be sensitive to. And so we might have kind of uh, out-of-control agents that are, pursuing perhaps morally okay goals, but are that are doing it in, in novel ways and in maybe in ways that will harm some people, that will uh, be offensive to others, and maybe they will discriminate against yet others, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, the idea of AI is, is thought to be particularly interesting from the point of view of aligning values with our technologies. But as you said, and as I also discussed in the chapter, uh, really any technology could be as assessed from the point of view of whether it fits nicely or whether it's clashes with our values. Yeah, maybe just kind of the last point we might make by way of introduction, because we'll get into, I think, the, the one of your main ideas is this conceptual framework for thinking about value alignment. But um, as you were talking, it occurred to me, well, two issues, two things occurred to me, um, just to emphasize for, for people listening. Um, one is that a lot of this issue kind of links back to something that we discussed in the first episode which is about you know, whether technologies are tools or whether they are in some sense like imbued with values, you know, whether they have kind of values embedded within them. So you know, the, the bridge example, well, it's just a static bridge. It doesn't move, doesn't do anything, but there was a value system underlying the construction of it. And in some sense, the bridge manifests or represents the values of the people who created it, or it can take on a different kind of value orientation, maybe in a certain society. Yeah, I, I know that that example is disputed. I mean, one thing I would say that seems relatively undisputed is that Robert Moses, the guy who was responsible for the construction of it, probably was racist or bigoted in his views. Uh, there's a very famous book written about him called The Power Broker by a guy called Robert Caro. And he seems to unearth reasonable evidence, I think, to suggest that Robert Moses was probably a racist in some sense, certainly in, a modern, in the modern uh, sense. Um, but yeah, as to whether there were other routes that people could avail of, that's that's a separate question. So, so that's kind of part of the issue here. Value alignment is particularly relevant because 
particularly if we assume that technology is not just like a tool of human agents, but is actually something that can manifest or represent human values in its operation or in just its presence in the world. And as you say, then AI seems to maybe raise a particularly acute value alignment problem because uh, it has some degree of like autonomous agency that it's going to do things without our direct input or control or without us like manipulating the tool like we would manipulate a hammer or something so um you know is there is there a value alignment for hammers maybe in the sense that they have the affordance of destruct destruction or something or like they can allow you to you know, um, harm people more than you could with your fists or something like that but um that's largely a problem with of human values and the way in which humans use it whereas with ai it's particularly sensitive because we're going to be giving it some some degree of autonomy however great that is so we have to make sure that it is imbued with the right values at its kind of point of origin or when we're re releasing it into the world yeah right. and in addition to that uh it's also the the issue that uh AI technologies involve machine learning, and so uh, they're not static in the way that a hammer might be. So uh, over, uh, they might do what is sometimes called, uh, I think it's the phrase is reward hacking. And so uh, the AI uh, tool has been given a certain uh, aim, but then it maybe comes up with a sort of perverse way of, of achieving the aim. So for example, I mean, like one example people talk about is uh, uh, the aim is not to lose a certain game, then uh, the AI technology well realizes in scare quotes that if it just pauses the game, it's not going to lose. Uh, so that's a good way of achieving the aim in, in the sense of just not losing. But on the other hand, that's a, a, well, a perverse uh, way of doing it, as, you know, as people sometimes say, because you're not really winning. You're just not losing by, by, just, by just stalling. So that's an example of how, you know, it, formally speaking, you know, the, the aim is achieved, but it's achieved in a way that the, the people didn't want it to achieve the aim. And, and that can also be done in different ways. Uh, uh, that you know, they could po possibly be dangerous. I mean, maybe just pausing a game is just annoying. But you could imagine cases where there would be reward hacking, where this would lead to all sorts of uh, problems and risks, and po 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 possibly also manifested, uh, yeah, you know, harms and not just uh, you know risks being created. Yeah, but let let's move on then to yeah. your kind of conceptual framework because I think like what's interesting is that the way in which the value alignment problem is traditionally discussed is sort of in a very kind of narrow or straightforward sense. And you add some complexity or nuance to this discussion by proposing this kind of like four quadrant model for thinking about alignment problems or issues, right? And so this four quadrant model is based on some very simple or classic distinctions within ethical theory or axiological theory or something like that. So maybe you could start off by discussing the, those conceptual distinctions, and then we can talk about the the four quadrants of your model. Absolutely. And so, uh, like many philosophers, I I, I love uh, being able to come up with a kind of a matrix with you know different uh, boxes and thinking about how things fit into the boxes. And you know, when you start, when you take sort of an intro to ethics course, and one of the first distinctions that you uh, usually uh, think about is the distinction between instrumental and intrinsic or non-instrumental values. And so a hammer, uh, to use the example that you just talked about, is instrumentally useful because you can achieve certain goals with the help of the hammer, but something like friendship uh, might be non-instrumentally good or an intrinsic good, something that you want not as a means to other things, but you want as an end or that you value as an end. I mean, other examples would include uh, other persons, 
they uh, have a kind of non-instrumental value uh, or maybe pleasure, happiness, knowledge, wisdom, virtue, etc. So these are non-instrumental or intrinsic goods as opposed to mere means or instrumental goods. That's the first distinction between in instrumental value and non-instrumental slash intrinsic value. The second distinction is between just you know, positive and negative value. And so the, the things I mentioned, friendship, wisdom, uh, love, etc., those are all good things. But what about, I don't know, slavery, war, uh, you know, nuclear war, to use the ex example before, suffering, uh, racism, and we talked about that. These are all negative values, bad things. So if you put these two distinctions together, the first distinction between uh, instrumental and non-instrumental value, and the distinction between uh, positive and negative value, basically you get four possibilities. I mean, you have a positive instrumental value, things that are good as means to ends. You have positive non-instrumental value, things that are good in themselves, friendship, love, uh, wisdom, uh, pleasure, whatever. And then you have instrumental negative value, things that cause uh, bad effects. Uh, so maybe, uh, you know, well, maybe a really bad hammer. So you try to hammer with it, but, you know, you're not going to hit the nail and you're going to hit your hand or whatever. It's so things that just have bad effects and uh, call, uh, risks uh, associated with them. And then things that are intrinsically or non-instrumentally bad. Uh, for example, suffering is usually uh, thought universally to be bad in itself, not as a means to other things. Uh, you know, other evils, uh, you know, maybe something like slavery, uh, you know, people being treated in a kind of undignified way, etc. These are all things that are seen as bad in themselves, not instrumentally bad. So we have have these four options uh, that come out of the two distinctions. The two distinctions being again between instrumental and non-instrumental value, and positive and negative value. So then the question, of course, becomes: Well, could there be alignment of two kinds, uh, value alignment that it has to do with instrumentally positive value and value alignment that has to do with non-instrumentally or intrinsically positive value? Or could there be a kind of misalignment of technology where the technology has bad effects, so it's instrumentally misaligned, so to speak? Or could the technology somehow be in itself misaligned? There's something in itself objectionable or bad about the technology. So those are the four kind of options that I discussed. And I do this partly because in the value alignment discussion, a lot of people have worried about what I call sort of uh, instrumental misalignment, cases where uh, technologies functions in, in a way that has bad effects. But, you know, you obviously people are interested in technologies that fun function in ways that have good effects. But there's, it's also interesting to ask whether the technology could somehow either in itself be good or maybe operate in a, in a way that is in itself good, or maybe the technology can somehow be in itself bad in some sense, or maybe operate in a way that's in, in itself bad. So those are the four options that I found it uh, kind of fascinating to, to look at. And actually, when you when you start thinking along those lines, then uh, if you look at the, uh, the, techno the, the, the literature about technology ethics, you actually see a lot of examples that fit very nicely into those four boxes. Yeah, I mean, I have a kind of, I have two sort of, uh, one is a linguistic question and the other one is um, a kind of larger philosophical question about this framework. You you seem to like shy away from the use of the word intrinsic value or you don't, you, you, know, you frame it in terms of non-instrumental value as opposed to intrinsic value. And whereas like, I suppose that that's the distinction that I'm familiar with from ethics, like that we have 
instrumental values and we have intrinsic values. Is there any particular reason for favoring uh, non-instrumental? As a yeah, term? Um, well, I mean, it's just because, I mean, there are some philosophers like Christine Korsgaard and uh, uh, some others who say that there could be things that are valued not as means to other ends, but as ends in themselves, but where you, you value them in this way, not because of their intrinsic properties, but because of their relational properties. And so uh, Korsgaard talks about uh, extrinsic final values. I mean, so she doesn't use the term non-instrumental, she talks about, well, actually, maybe she doesn't, but uh, some other people have written about this talk in this way. And so, for example, if you have um, just a, an, an object, I mean, maybe, uh, you know, your grandfather gave you the watch you're wearing there. Uh, it looks like it's new enough that probably not because uh, we're in a video call as we're recording this. But let's say that, you you know, you have this watch that your grandfather yeah, my, gave. My wife gave it to me. But yeah. Your wife? Well, perfect. On, on our wedding day. So there's oh, some sort of Yeah, so it has a special association for you. Yeah. And so you may value that watch not just as a means to an end because, uh, you know, you can tell time. And so it's actually quite convenient. But you also value the watch as a kind of like entity that's not just a means it has a special meaning for you and so you value it in a kind of non-instrumental way but you do it not because of its intrinsic properties but because of its relation to you know that special day and like your, your wife and your you know nice relationship etc so uh, that's the idea that you know there could be some of those things that are not merely means to ends but that still you know they don't have their value because of their intrinsic nature necessarily but also because of their relation to other things and so I just wanted to use a term that you know could also allow in. I mean, I, this is all very technical. I mean, like philosophers who talk about intrinsic value, they often say things like happiness is valuable because of its intrinsic nature and of what it's like in itself, and that's why it's good in a non-instrumental way. I just wanted to allow for the possibility that something like your watch could, at least for you, have an, a non-instrumental value because of its relation to this you know, event in the past, your, your, your wife's presenting it to you and you have, you have a nice relationship, et cetera. So it's very special for you. I mean, maybe for me, uh, well, I mean, we're friends and so like maybe for me, I also like I, I can have this association, but for a random stranger would assess your watch, I think only from the point of view is that, I mean, I mean well, actually, even them, they might say it's a, it's a beautiful watch, maybe nice looking, but for them, it might be more of an end. And for you, it's also, sorry, sorry for, the, for them, it's more of a means but for you, it's a means and an end. That's the reason. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, ironically, I suppose the watch example is complicated in certain ways because, you know, like, what is the actual instrumental value of the watch? Um, you know, because, like, for some people, it's just for telling time, but for other people, it's, like, kind of signaling or social status goods, like this whole world of watch collecting, which is very much bound up with having, like, very expensive and stylish watches that, I think are maybe valuable aesthetically. You appreciate the kind of workmanship from that went into it, but also maybe valuable in a kind of signaling sense. But yes, I like I think the example is is clear enough that you know intrinsic value as discussed by philosophers is quite a maybe a narrow concept that the, the thing in itself is valuable, the event in itself is valuable. Whereas there are, might be other things that are not instrumentally valuable, but they're valuable in this kind of relational sense because of how they relate to other things in, in the world, like my personal life story or narrative, my my memories and that kind of thing. That's yeah. fine. I mean, the, the other question is is also sort of maybe a technical philosophical question, which we don't have to get into in much detail, but I just want to sort of throw it out there for people who are listening. I mean, when we talk about values intrinsically and instrumentally, um, I mean, the, the perspective that you adopt in this book is sort of like, oh, I guess 
a value pluralist perspective, right? So you're thinking that there's many values. They're not necessarily reducible to one another. Like friendship isn't necessarily reducible to, you know, the value of happiness or um, pleasure or something like that. Whereas, I mean, yes, there are other people out there who might try and like say that there's just like one, one single final value, like classical utilitarians would say, you know, just sentient flourishing or pleasure is the final and ultimate value and all other things that we claim are valuable are reducible to that thing but you're adopting this more pluralist perspective where there's lots of valuable things and they're not necessarily commensurate with one another right yeah that's yeah absolutely so yes some philosophers say that in non-instrumental values as i'm calling them uh, they all have to be in the same metaphysical category so maybe they're states of affairs maybe they are experiences Maybe they are concrete objects, but uh, I'm I'm trying to be kind of pluralistic in this book and to think that, well, actually, people do value things in different categories in a non-instrumental way. I mean, they value other persons, they value events, as you said, they may, maybe value uh, experiences, they maybe value uh, states of affairs, for example, that some outness, some, something is just or something like that. And, and I just want, didn't want to taking a particular stance, I mean, partly it's because I personally, in my own philosophizing, don't think that we should be monists about this, but also given that this is a sort of introduction to technology ethics, uh, I don't didn't want to rule out too many options and that just, you know, rather than that, you know, think about, you know, what people could say about these things. And if you are a pluralist, uh, you know, what would that mean for something like, you know, this issue about value alignment, uh, uh, but I mean, as it happens, I, I do also think that we, sh we should be pluralists, but uh, this also has to do, as I said, with the, the fact that this is a intro book and I wanted to keep things as broad and open-ended as possible. Yeah, and I mean, this is also like too complicated an issue to get into, but one of the reasons why I raised that question is just that um, when people think about the, the application of your framework, which I promise we'll now get into in more detail, um, you know, it it becomes more or less complex depending on whether you're like a, a value pluralist or a monist in, in some sense, because like, how do you actually weigh the different values or mis misaligned values in, in question? Right. Because, you know, um, like I mean, an example we, we might get into later is that you might end up creating an AI that is in some sense itself intrinsically valuable or sorry, non-instrumentally valuable, but then it also, maybe it causes like instrumental harm. So, you know, how do you kind of weigh those competing values in question that that becomes a a question for you when you're maybe applying this framework in the real world with how we like manage technological risks or something like that so that, that's why i wanted to raise it no absolutely i mean I, I, we discussed uh, briefly consequentialism uh in the first episode the idea that you should optimize or maximize uh well some people say you should maximize non-instrumental value and then of course you need to be able to compare different values and so the more pluralistic you are and the more that you allow things from different categories to be uh, non-instrumental valuable, the harder it becomes to come up with a kind of algorithm for, you know, getting uh, coming up with the answer to the question which action uh, option would sort of optimize or maximize expected value. But uh, here again, I'm assuming that uh, we wouldn't only think about ethics in, a, in that kind of maximizing consequentialist kind of way. That we would also, you know, be open to other perspectives. But but yeah, so. Uh, it gets complicated from the from the point of view of some ethical theories. I mean, some people say 
that's how it should be because ethics is complicated and it's messy and uh, this is one of the reasons as we will discuss in a later episode why it's hard to build a, a technology that could be a moral agent because a real moral agent people some people argue is sensitive to the fact that it's very hard to make value comparisons and sometimes maybe you can't sometimes there are even sort of moral dilemmas where uh, values are clashing and there's nothing that you can do about it but anyway but we let's indeed get to the uh, some of the examples yeah, so I mean, if we go back then to the four quadrant model, we've got four possibilities to discuss, and these are the way in which I describe them. So you, you can have instrumentally aligned technology that is in some sense aligned with our our values and produces good thing, good values in the world. You can have instrumentally misaligned technology which uh, produces kind of bad outcomes in the world. Um, you can have non-instrumentally aligned technology, um, and you can have uh, non-instrumentally misaligned technology. So yeah, maybe maybe I can just add one thing. Sorry to to, to, to keep yeah. this up. Like when it comes to the first, the, the instrumentally aligned versus instrumentally misaligned. I think there's an interesting asymmetry that I just want to quickly mention. Like people usually want the instrumentally aligned technologies to be sort of what you might call robustly well aligned, so that in in a, a very wide range of circumstances, the technology would produce good effects. Uh, whereas when they worry about misalignment of technology, they often worry about not just like, well, obviously you, you wouldn't want a technology that would across a very wide range of circumstances produce bad effects, but the worry might just be that there's a small risk that in certain circumstances there would be a bad effect. And that might be enough for it to count as instrumentally misaligned, whereas in order for it to count as instrumentally well-aligned, it might need to be produce good outcomes across a broad spe spectrum, and not just in, in one small set of circumstances. Anyway, so I think that's an interesting thing. Yeah, and I think that, no, that, that is a good, that is a good point. And I suppose like that asymmetry plays out in other philosophical debates as well. Like if you think yeah. about the debate between positive versus negative utilitarianism or something like that, that we should be more sensitive on the on the negative side than on the on the positive side to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I, that is a an important point about how people think about those risks. But I mean, let's just kind of quickly go, give maybe examples in each of those quadrants. So what would be like an example of an instrumentally aligned technology? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's actually interesting there to maybe introduce one more uh, 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 sort of distinction there, but between the aim that people have when they design the technology and whether they actually can achieve the aim. And so the example that I had in mind uh, is uh, self-driving cars. And so uh, in 2015, I think, uh, uh, Chris Armson, who was then with uh, Google's self-driving cars uh, program, gave a TED talk, and he talks about uh, the promise of self-driving cars, uh, and he talks about fully self-driving cars. He doesn't talk about sort of some partly automated type of car. And the idea is supposed to be that they're supposed to be safe across a very wide range of traffic scenarios that could arise. And so he talks about how in some of the testing that they did, suddenly there was a woman on an elect electronic wheelchair who was going around in circles chasing some ducks uh, or you know doing something with some ducks and that's a very unlikely scenario and luckily for the googlers and for this woman and for the ducks uh the self-driving car that was they were experimenting with was able to sort of handle that scenario in, in a kind of safe way uh, i think it just stopped and waited until the, the, the woman was done and the ducks were out of the way or something like that but the idea was that uh, one of the things that humans have a problem with, he, he, Chris Urbson argued, was that sort of to be safe across a very wide range of traffic scenarios. And the hope was that self-driving cars 
would be able to do that in a better way than humans are. So that was sort of one of the selling points from his point of view about self-driving cars. Now, uh, I mean, we're now uh, about eight years uh, away from that and still we haven't really got sort of self-driving cars at level five as they're called that, that really are able to do this that they're able to handle scenarios that are uh, predictable uh, where the weather conditions are good and where the streets are sort of non-chaotic but uh it's, it's, you know so the aim is to produce this technology that will handle any kind of scenario but in reality that can be much more difficult but that you know if they do manage to create self-driving cars that can be safe you know, good weather, bad weather, you know, when there are ducks on the road, when there are, you know, people doing strange things, uh, uh, when things work normally, then that would be a very, instrumentally speaking, well-aligned type of technology. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if this is, sorry, when you were talking, this is an example of uh, technology that's like accidentally aligned with our values or like, so it's, it's not intentionally aligned by with our values in this sense by the programmers, but it ended up doing a good job of it. Maybe like the AlphaGo program would be an illustration of this. You know, there's, there's this famous example, and I don't know if I'm going to remember like the name of the move in question, but in the AlphaGo hmm. series of matches with Lee Doll, they played this move. I think, I think it was like move 37 or something with a seven ending in it. Yeah. Um, in one of the games which shocked all like the experts because they said well no human would ever play that move it doesn't seem it, they all thought it had made a mistake and that Lucy Dahl would go on and win the game and then it turned out that he he did win the game or sorry that AlphaGo did win the game and they looked back and they said oh, actually this was a really sort of creative and clever move within the context of a game and obviously the purpose of the AlphaGo system was to win the game so it became it was aligned with the values of the creators of it ultimately but sort of accidentally aligned as well in the sense that they didn't anticipate or appreciate it that would do this specific thing. Absolutely. And then we get back to the idea of machine learning as a, as a possible way of aligning uh, the technologies with values, but also, as we will maybe discuss, as possibly misaligning. Uh, I mean, this is this example with AlphaGo interestingly contrasts with the case where uh, the AI technology would pause the game as a way of not losing. Here, uh, what happens was that uh, by... I mean, the AlphaGo was trained on thousands of human-played Go games, but also on millions of uh, games that AlphaGo played against itself. And through this process of machine learning, the, the program developed all these strategies that humans thought were mistakes, uh, as you know, and showed in this uh, move 20 or 37 or 47, whatever it was, that humans are sort of taught not to make that move. But as you said, in, in the particular context of that type of game, it actually is a really good strategy. And people are actually now studying... AlphaGo and its moves to kind of come up with new rules for humans to follow when they play. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the technology may be well aligned because it was designed specifically to, to fun, function a certain way or because it itself, through machine learning, came up with a new way of doing something that turned out to be good and, and instrumentally useful. Okay, well, what about like instrumentally misaligned um, technology? Maybe this is like the easiest category because it sort of features in all the doom scenarios but yeah but i mean what would be a good illustration of that from your perspective uh well i mean two cases we've already discussed and again let me emphasize that here one worries not only about uh there being a frequent misalignment which of course is an obvious case but also the case that under certain unexpected circumstances there might be a kind of a risky scenarios arising and so the case with the uh the missile detection system with stanislav petrov that we started with it's a good example. So maybe that system worked fine most of the time, but on this one occasion, it uh, was almost 
about to cause a nuclear war because it suggested to the humans that, okay, an attack had been launched. Another case that we talked about was the Tesla uh, Model S car that thought that, well, thought uh, within, uh, you know, inverted commas, I mean, that, that a, um, uh, a cloud was, a well, it, it thought that a truck was a cloud. And so that just steamed on with full speed ahead and, and then ran straight into this uh, truck. So technologies like self-driving cars are sometimes used as examples of possibly well-aligned technologies, but they're also used as examples as possibly misaligned technologies because there's a risk that they would lead to bad effects, such as people being injured. Uh, but there are also lots of other examples. I mean, there's one. Uh, so I, I have a former colleague, uh, a Belgian philosopher who worked in the Netherlands when I was there, uh, Kathleen Gabrielsen. since she has a book uh, with lots of examples. I mean, she talks, for example, about uh, technologies. Um, um, there's one, there's a soap dispenser that uh, you, know, you need to have a certain skin tone in order to be able to wash your hands because it doesn't react uh, to certain skin tones. And so it causes, uh, at the very least, uh, people to, to maybe leave the, the bathroom without, you know, washed hands. I mean, so that's a bad effect. This is also technology that could potentially go into the box of uh, sort of non-instrumentally misaligned technologies because the technology could be yet another example that could be seen as racist because it would discriminate against people with certain skin tones. So let's let's return to that example. But at the very least, it would cause certain people to not be able to wash their hands with soap. I mean, you could still, I guess, rinse your hands with water, but uh, uh, would be one of these examples that are. Uh, now, if we want to go also to maybe some of the, some of the sort of the uh, 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 AI uh, science fiction examples, I mean, you could go back to the to the uh, paperclip maximizer uh, that could cause uh, people to be turned into paperclips because the you know it's just uh, maybe the, the super intelligence comes up with a way of turning human bodies into paperclips that would be definitely a bad effect for, for people if, if that were to happen. So yeah, I mean, you can come up with anything from real life examples, crashing self-driving cars, to sort of science fiction examples, human beings being turned into paperclips and uh, all sorts of bad effects uh, and risks are involved when you create uh, even simple technologies such as hammers or frying pans or more advanced ones such as self-driving cars or super intelligent AI systems. Yes. So, um, I mean, as most people are kind of familiar about talking about value alignment within those two quadrants. So those are sort of the well-explored conceptual terrain, the, the maybe less, I mean, it is well-explored, but it's maybe less well-appreciated in this term, in these terms explored terrain is the, the the next two quadrants so the the non-instrumentally aligned and misaligned categories so let's start with the non-instrumentally aligned categories what would what would be an example of a technology that kind of fits within that quadrant yeah and so here one might then maybe make it sort of distinction between whether the technology itself is somehow well aligned in a non-instrumental way or maybe the way that we interact with the technology would have some sort of non-instrumental positive value. Uh, and so maybe we can start with the, actually the second possibility that there's something about the way that we interact with the technology that's non-instrumentally positive. And in that sense, it's well aligned. I mean, you yourself have argued in some of your work that we can have robots as our friends. Uh, and some other people argue that robots could be moral agents making good moral decisions. A self-driving car might, might make the right decision in a risky traffic scenario. Now, if you think that friendship and virtue or you know, good moral decision-making are uh, examples of non-instrumental goods, 
then the way that these technologies are operating by being able to be our friends or being able to make good moral decisions, that could be seen as something that has a kind of non-instrumental value. Again, because we think of friendship or maybe being good and virtuous as being non-instrumentally good. Of course, uh, there could also be the case where the technology somehow is in itself beautiful or something like that. Uh, that could be a kind of non-instrumental value alignment. It, it aligns with the value of beauty or aesthetic you know, value, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I, we go back to the example of the watch. I mean, this is one of the things that people do with watches. They try to make them beautiful. So uh, it's, a, it's a means to an end. And so if it tells the time correctly, but some people even wear old watches that don't actually tell the time correctly uh, because, you know, they, they're not well, well uh, adjusted or whatever, but they're beautiful. They're nice looking. Uh, and maybe they also have a, a value for you because it's you know, special or whatever. And so, uh, but, but yeah, th this would be another example of a kind of, non-instrumentally well-aligned value, something that's beautiful or something that helps to realize the value of something like friendship or good moral decision-making or something like that. Uh, there's, there's probably examples where the technology helps realize a value that's not an instrumental value, perhaps by design, perhaps uh, by accident. I mean, what if the Alpha Go, in addition to, to coming up with goal strategies, and this is going to be a very unrealistic example, it also comes up with good uh, strategies for how, uh, I don't know, self-driving cars should handle uh, accident scenarios and traffic, uh, you know, where, where there's a risk of, a, of, a, of an accident. I mean, if that were to be a kind of interesting side effect of coming up with goal strategies, which, I mean, this is totally unrealistic, then that would be a kind of unanticipated positive thing because from a non-instrumental point of view because making good moral decisions of course has an instrumental value because people are lives are saved and good outcomes are achieved but a lot of people think that when you and i uh if we ever do we make good moral decisions we also exhibit a kind of i don't know ethical wisdom or virtue and that is seen as sort of a non-instrumentally valuable in addition to whatever good effects our virtue or our decisions may lead to yeah, and I mean, just kind of link it back to the ethical frameworks that we discussed earlier in in this kind of series in episodes one. You know that that view is obviously much more at home with. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the examples you gave it are much more at home with, let's say, like the virtue ethical tradition or the Kantian tradition than with the consequentialist tradition. Although, like to be clear, the consequentialist tradition does not rule out the idea that there are non-instrumental values in some sense the whole point of it is that we're trying to do things that produce non-instrumental values but the examples that you gave about you know morally correct decision making being kind of valuable in and of itself or non-instrumentally valuable or the technology being kind of like an end in itself that these are concepts that fit very neatly within like a virtue ethical or kantian tradition Absolutely. I mean, I, I should say they could also fit within the traditions of uh, Confucian and Ubuntu ethics that we talked about. So, for example, if you think, uh, as Confucian ethicists do, that uh, social harmony is a kind of non-instrumental value, and there were there was some sort of technology that would help to bring about social uh, harmony, and that somehow would also be a part of the system of social harmony, then perhaps from that point of view, there's a certain non-instrumental value to the way that we interact with that technology, if you think that, uh, I mean, as a, a Chris Wareham, as a philosopher, has written about African perspectives on AI, uh, he argues in one of his papers that you can introduce uh, robots into the sort of the circle of 
the kinds of re relationships that I talk about in Ubuntu ethics of uh, you know persons becoming persons through other persons. Uh, that that's a kind of slogan within that type of philosophy. And the idea is that we become persons by interacting with other persons and we sort of mutually help each other to become more fully realized as persons. If AI technologies could be participate in that type of interaction, uh, then maybe this could also be non-instrumentally good from that point of view. And maybe AI technologies could be, you know, could also become a person through other persons. And so, uh, I mean, maybe one more thing. I mean, as you said, consequentialists could also uh, you know, be part of the game here because they could say, uh, quite unlike someone like Jeremy Bentham, who just said that pleasure is the only thing to maximize. I mean, maybe the consequences could technically speak and say that virtue is a good and we should maximize virtue as one of the many goods. Actually, Philip Pettit is a consequentialist who says that virtue is good in itself and one should be a consequentialist, meaning that one of the things that one should promote is the value of virtue. Yeah, I just want to mention like one other way in which a consequentialist could be part of this game and it features in like the arguments or views of somebody like maybe Nick Bostrom or uh, maybe Ray Kurzweil, like the, where they have this idea that the ultimate aim of technology is to create sentient life everywhere, like that you can create sentient oh, technology yeah. everywhere that is experiencing pleasure or good. And this is the ultimate aim of of humanity or ethics or some in in some way and so that would be a kind of like a non-instrumentally aligned technology as well as it if the technology itself is sentient and experiencing the good life right absolutely and from that point of view you could say that uh the technology if it would bring about uh you know sentient other technologies and would promote you know the the, the happiness of those technologies then maybe it would be uh, non-instrumentally well aligned in the sense of doing the right thing. Uh, and so, you know, you, a lot of the discussion so far has been about whether it's good or bad that technologies function in certain ways. But you can also ask, is it right or wrong in what the technology is doing? And it could be non-instrumentally right, so to speak, to, you know, I don't know, be a technology that's able to produce happy other technologies or happy people or whatever. So, yeah, there's some... In, there's more complexity to this, but then, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm already making it complicated with these four boxes, but you could also add, of course, variations to these themes. But uh, yeah, uh, I guess the, the, the one that we haven't yet talked about is the sort of last one, instrumentally yeah, yeah. misaligned values. I did already bring up one example, namely technologies that are somehow inherently uh, racist in the way that they are. I mean, uh, here too, the aesthetics. I mean, some people think that art can be uh, in, inherently racist. Uh, so the depictions of people from certain uh, you know, groups in society, social groups, can somehow be inherently offensive to certain people. Uh, if a technology functions in, in a way that's sort of discriminating against certain people, then that can be seen as a technology that's operating in a non-instrumentally bad way. Uh, if a technology uh, couldn't be used other than in ways that are make, you know, designed to make people suffer, so instruments of torture... Uh, you know, I don't know, the, the equipment used for waterboarding or something like that. And let's say, I mean, I probably you can use some use it for something else, but let's say that you could only torture people with it. Then maybe some people would say that that's a technology that could only be used in bad ways and ways in which, uh, I mean, torture is sometimes considered to be non-instrumentally bad. Maybe the way that the technology operates is then uh, negatively, uh, non-instrumentally misaligned. Uh, yeah. Or if the technology is a moral agent, 
but it's an unethical moral agent. And so it's a sort of a chatbot like Tay uh, that, you know, started denying the Holocaust, that started, you know, making racist statements and, and all sorts of things. I mean, maybe here too, the, the way the technology is operating once it's up and running might have a kind of non-instrumental negative value. So that would be another example. Yeah, and maybe, and kind of two others that um, come to mind, obviously, in, in, in the world of like robots, that if the robots kind of express or symbolize something that is negative. So people like Kathleen Richardson have argued explicitly that um, sex robots would kind of symbolize or embody a, a kind of unequal gendered relationship. So it's bad in and of itself, uh, or not instrumentally bad, but it also could have bad consequences in the world. That's also part of her view, but there could be this kind of expressive or symbolic harm associated with it as well. And Robert Sparrow has kind of similar view about the construction of you know, rape robots, I think he's, he talks about, but also then some kind of racist uh, stereotypes within in robots. And there's yeah, one, I... one other example I wanted to mention, which is kind of the flip side of what I mentioned about you know, the Bostrom um, Kurzweilian view of creating sentient robots. You know, somebody like Thomas Metzinger has argued that you know we should not create um, sentient AI or that or AI that has the potential of being sentient because that what we could actually be creating is uh, lots of suffering in the world. This so is kind of there's a, a non instrumental harm associated with the technology there as well. Misalignment, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, so Rob Sparrow, I mean, he he argues that uh, sex robots would uh, symbolize sort of a uh, rape culture, the idea of glamorizing rape and 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 being. Uh, you know, not interested in sexual consent and things like that. But he also thinks, and he has a paper that's called Robotics as a Race Problem, uh, where he thinks that somehow uh, the ro robots that are seen as being human-like will, be will be perceived almost inevitably as having, you know, certain racial identities. And this is already uh, highly problematic, he thinks, because uh, if the robot is created to look like it's white or black, whatever it might be, uh, then you know, there are all sorts of problems with this. Uh, yeah, so people are interested in this, they can definitely check out uh, Sparrow, because as you say, uh, for him, uh, the symbolism is maybe one of the most important aspects. And, and I mean, he sometimes talks about the possible effects, the possible effects on people's character and the symbolism. And he worries that a lot of robots will have problems, both in, you know, along all these lines. And so he's someone who tends to focus on the, the two kinds of misalignment uh, and then the bad effects are both bad effects on other people and maybe bad effects on the user of the technology. Yeah, and I mean, I like, I suppose I've written a bit about this. Well, I kind of invent or came up with this argumentative scheme uh, for typical objections to sex robots in particular, but I guess it applies more generally, which is I call like the symbolic consequences argument that so, uh, many of the objections are based on symbolism, but also marrying the symbolism to negative consequences and that kind of fits within your two misaligned quadrants then and absolutely and the robot robot kind of maybe come to symbolize something good i mean so it could yes, be that, uh, something starts out as symbolizing a problematic kind of relationship but then uh i mean if someone like you are right that one can be friends with the robots or that you can uh, you can or at least you can interact with the robot in a way that sort of celebrates friendship or celebrates good relationships then what perhaps was uh, previously symbolizing something bad may sort of be turned around into something that sort of symbolizes something uh, non-instrumentally good. Yeah, and I mean, that, that was, important, I guess, a, an important part of my paper on this because I was adopting a view from other people like Jason Brennan 
that symbols aren't necessarily fixed in their meaning, their ethical meaning or associations, that they are to some extent open to reinterpretation or reconsideration. And you can see this to some extent when you look at how the symbolic meaning of different practices varies cross-culturally. Um, so things that we think are symbolically bad are symbolically good in, in other cultures. Uh, and there's, there's many examples or, or illustrations of that. Uh, I want to kind of wrap up this discussion, and I think try, let's try to avoid the going too long, which we did in the, in the previous episode. So the, the final part of your, your chapter is on the control problem. And maybe we'll just like cut this discussion short because to some extent issues around control problems will come up in later chapters. So we, you know, we'll do a discussion on constructing a moral agent as a robot. And I think the issue of the control problem sort of comes back in there because of the difficulty of, of doing that. But like obviously the gist of the control problem in the way it's understood, certainly within like the AI risk literature is well, we would create a technology that would get out of control, like the paperclip maximizer. So you create a, a super intelligent AI with the goal of maximizing paperclips. And at a certain point in time, you just, because it's so powerful, we have no ability to shut it down, switch it off, limit its harmful consequences. So that's how it's typically understood. Um, and I was saying to you, the kind of offline, when we were discussing this in advance, that this obviously links into the idea of like the Colin Ridge dilemma as well, which is a famous problem in the design of technological systems, which is that we often have control at a certain point in time when we don't really fully appreciate the consequences of a technology, but we sort of lose control over it at a later point in time when the consequences or effects of it become more obvious. Maybe that's true, let's say, with the internet. There's a certain point in time where we could have limited the rollout of the internet. Um but at that point in time, we didn't really know what its broader social consequences would have been. But now we're really at a point where we just can't really put the, what's the um, idiom or expression we use, like put the, the cat back in the box or put the horse back in the stable, right? It's it's too late for any of that. Or Florida, uh, to, to bring up uh, Florida, and he talks about putting the toothpaste back into the tube, which it's very hard to do. But uh... Yeah, or un yeah. Yeah, unscrambling the egg or something like this. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, but the thing I wanted to touch upon with you in terms of these control problems is like, I think that what's interesting about your chapter is you kind of introduce a distinctive control problem, which has, is linked into the idea of the actual value of control itself. So, kind of taking a step back, it's not, it's not so much like, can we control the technology, but like, what is the actual value of controlling the technology in the first place? So, that was sort of what I was maybe hoping we could wrap up on. Yeah, so I mean, when it comes to control, there too you could uh, distinguish between the instrumental and the non-instrumental value, or indeed disvalue or uh, of control. I mean, so like you could say that uh, you know a lot of technologies that are dangerous, it's really good to control them because then we can avoid uh, bad outcomes. So there can be a sort of instrumental value in controlling technologies. Uh, it could, of course, also be that some technologies would work better if we gave up some control. Uh, so uh, Roman. Let's say Jan Polsky uh, uh, is a very interesting computer scientist who writes very philosophical papers about uh, AI safety. He talks about how if I had complete control over a self-driving car so that it would always do exactly what I tell it to do, then I could maybe say stop uh, when I'm in the middle of the, you know, the Autobahn here in Germany where I live. Uh, but then that might cause like a massive uh, traffic accident or that, you know, because people are driving really fast. And so it might be safer to have less direct control uh, and having direct control there might be instrumentally bad. 
But what about control uh, from the point of view of non-instrumental value or uh, negative value? Uh, and actually here, I think, uh, and we may, might talk a little bit more about this in the next episode, but let's focus on the last possibility, the possibility being where, where there could be something non-instrumentally non, uh, bad or misaligned about control and technology. And here too, we get this interesting case with the, the friendship, uh, you know, with robots or with AI. I mean, a lot of people, not just robots, I mean, people sometimes uh, who use uh, Replica, the chatbot say that this is my new friend. I mean, this is my new best friend even. I mean, I never feel so recognized and so good as when I speak, talk with Replica, the chatbot. Uh, or, you know, this, the same could be true so potentially of someone having a friendship with some robot uh, or the, what they regard as a kind of a friendship with the robot. They see that as a good thing. Now, if at the same time the person would want to have sort of absolute control over their the, the replica technology or the robot friend, then there might be a kind of problem here because uh, uh, in the human case, having absolute control over your friends, I mean, that's... Uh, uh, you know, that wouldn't really be friendship. It, it would be a kind of slavery or something like that. Uh, uh, controlling other persons uh, is a bad thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, you shouldn't be trying to control your friends or your your, your partner, whatever it might be. Uh, but now if we have robots or AI chatbots as potential friends or partners, uh, then uh, this, you know, and, and we wanted to control them at the same time, that would be either it would be non-instrumentally bad because the, the robot could really be a, a person or a friend or to go the sparrow route it could symbolize something bad so you might say so i'm personally a little bit skeptical of the idea that we can be friends with robots at least with contemporary current ex currently existing robots but of course i recognize that there are people who say that they have a you know, replica or robots as their friends and uh, so for those people if they at the same time wanted to completely control the robotic or chatbot friends there would be something from the sort of spare point of view symbolically bad about that because what well, uh, they would they would enact a kind of relationship that would say two things at the same time this is my friend firstly and second this is something i want to completely control and those two things clash with each other and uh, that would symbolize a bad kind of relationship you shouldn't be trying to control those who are supposed to be your equals who are supposed to be your friends uh, so that's a kind of application of this idea of a negative type of misalignment between uh, the way that you uh, have technologies functioning and the way that you want to interact with them. You want it to be your friend, and at the same time, you want to have full control over it. And those two ideas are are clashing because the way that we think about friendship should be a sort of relationship among between equals, where the part the parties are not trying to control each other, and there should be a kind of I don't know a, a symmetry in terms of you know the freedoms that are allowed on both sides or something like that. Yeah, and again, the, the crucial point here is in terms of the control problem, but this sort of links back to the actual value of control in, in the context of those relationships. I mean, I don't, I can't remember if you cite this example, but one of the very early papers on sexual relationships with robots and the ethics of that was a paper by a guy called Dylan Evans, somewhat controversial individual, if people want to look him up. But anyway, um, although I, I, look, I, 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 yeah, I don't want to, I, I don't want to say anything. Um, potentially slanderous but um he was involved in certain kind of legal disputes with a, a university so you can you can find the information about that online but he sort of had this paper i think it was called like wanting the impossible was the title of the paper how the the desire to like create a robot sexual partner 
uh, was paradoxical because you yeah you want to create an, an an other person that you can have this meaningful intimate relationship with but you also want total control over all aspects of that relationship in terms of how you specify them and the person can never leave the relationship either that you know they they always have to be a willing consensual well not the consent is, is irrelevant they always have to be a kind of willing partner to you whereas an, an actually valuable intimate sexual relationship would always be mutual and would always have the possibility of non non-consent or like not uh being a willing partner and so there's something impossible with it within the desire so it's not yeah it's kind of like a an ethical or conceptual paradox at the heart of the creation of that technology so that could be the case right yeah i mean actually lily frank and i also discussed this in a paper that we wrote and we sort of argued that part of the value of a human friend uh, is that they sort of or you know part of this that they voluntarily by their own choice uh, sort of choose to be your partner friend and that there's something uh, you know nice and beautiful about that but if you know if you create a technology that has no choice uh, then you know you can't have that aspect that we value in relation to friendship or, or you know have a romantic partners or whatever but as you said the, the opposite then that the thing couldn't choose and that you would still call your friend I mean it can be a clash uh, I mean maybe um, one thing I, I should just quickly say just to relate the control problem back to the discussion about value alignment is that actually uh, the, the whole idea of value alignment has sometimes actually been seen as one possible solution to the control the old control problem the, the, what I'm calling the new control problem is the sort of the the, the problem of wanting to, con to control something where it might be unethical to want to control it but the old control problem is that AI technologies might spin out of control and one solution to that is just to limit their capacities this is sometimes called the capacities solution or something like that to the control problem just not make the, uh, the technologies powerful so that enough that we can lose control over them but some people say well, then we're going to miss out on some of the benefits. Plus, it might be hard to limit the capacities of some machine learning systems. And so what can we then do if we can't control them by you know, controlling their capacities? Well, we can maybe control them by aligning them with our values. And so the whole idea of value alignment is sometimes seen as one way of, of solving the issue of losing control over technology. Okay, so we lose control of them. However, they are aligned with our values. And so it's okay, so to speak. Uh, I mean, that whole way of thinking makes some people uncomfortable because we do tend to like to have control over things such as ourselves and our technologies. Uh, but uh, it, I think it's just worth mentioning that, I mean, why did I, I mean, well, why, why would anyone discuss value alignment and the control problem together? Well, actually, it's because value alignment is often introduced as a solution to the control problem. And what I wanted to do in my chapter is to say that Yes, that's true, and that's very important. But at the same time, there are also all these other issues about aligning technology with human values. The ones that we discussed that I mean, they are tangentially related to, to controlling technology, but there's also a wider range of ways in which technologies can be aligned or, or misaligned with uh, you know human values, and they don't all have to do with the control. But of course, some of them do have to do with control in interesting ways. Yeah, no, I think that's um, a kind of useful point. And the conceptual framework I think that you offer is also useful for sorting out these uh, different ways of thinking about the value alignment and also then ultimately the control issue or problem. And many of these themes or ideas will reoccur in subsequent episodes anyway. So we'll have an opportunity to explore some of these examples from different angles later on. So let, let's kind of wrap up then with... Um, 
maybe recommendations and uh, we'll talk then about what we'll discuss next yeah so i mean i you already mentioned a paper that i would definitely recommend namely this paper by atusa kasasari and jason uh, gabriel about uh, value alignment and large language models uh came out in this year which is 2023 in uh, the, the journal uh, philosophy and technology the exact title i can't remember but if you have uh, you know those keywords you can easily find it so that is certainly a very interesting recent uh, paper about value alignment and large language models I mean, I would also recommend that people check out, uh, you know, the chapters of uh, Nick Bostrom's book, uh, Superintelligence, about, you know, the paperclip maximizer and capacity control, etc. Some people say that that's too science fiction like and it's a kind of scaremonger and it's unrealistic. But uh, whatever the case might be, it's interesting. It's also entertaining. And it's uh, uh, you can read it as a kind of philosophical science fiction, if nothing else. Uh, and maybe one last recommendation, if you also want to think about this, not from the point of view of someone who's approaching this from the point of view of philosophy, but who's someone who's coming from AI research, then uh, Stuart Russell's book, uh, Human Compatible, uh, is an interesting example, because um, Stuart Russell is one of the leading uh, you know, researchers on the technical side of things, who has gotten interested in AI ethics because he worries about the control problem and because he worries about value alignment. And so in addition to having written the sort of the standard textbook on AI, uh, together with Peter Norvig, uh, Artificial Intelligence, a, more, a Modern Approach, he also wrote this book, uh, Human Compatible, uh, which came out in 2019, which is, uh, you know, it talks about the, how the technology works, but he also talks about why he thinks that uh, value alignment and, and control issues are super important. Yeah, I mean, I, in terms of my own recommendations, I would also kind of second most of those examples. I mean, I do think Bostrom's book, even though obviously it's sort of become controversial or, you know, his views and the views of that community uh, of scholars are controversial and really rub some people up the wrong way. I do think that book is is one of the kind of richer sources of ideas in sort of certainly philosophy of AI and philosophy of technology more generally. If we want to go for like, a slightly different direction, linking it back to this idea of technologies being imbued with values and value alignment, if it was a classic article, would be something like Langdon Winner's Do Artifacts Have Politics, which I think was published back in 1980, which has that example of the bridges uh, going out to the beaches in Long Island, but also has several other examples. And I think a lot of people discuss the first part of the paper and not the latter part of the paper. And so I recommend that people actually read that original paper and not just the summaries or discussions of it. And maybe like two other examples. I mean, Yasser Gabriel has also written a very good paper generally about the value alignment problem, which I think is called Artificial Intelligence Values and Alignment from 2020 in Minds and Machines. I think that's a good paper for summarizing the challenges. He divides it up into these different problems, like a technical problem a normative problem and a political problem of value alignment for AI. So that's a good source. And then I guess a more popular text, and again, it's all really about AI, is um, is it Brian Christian's The Alignment Problem, which uh, came out maybe two years ago, three years ago, I can't remember, but that's a sort of a pop science type take on the alignment problem. Okay, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. So the next topic to discuss will be around issues of autonomy and uh, behavior change um, technologies. So that'll be our, our next discussion. So 
uh, I'll talk to you for that then. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much.